When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. People like to say in uh, life, there's no dress rehearsals. I think the whole thing is a dress rehearsal, right? The dress rehearsal is when you get to put on the costume and do the dance and pretend there's an audience in front of you. Every single day is a dress rehearsal for me because, you know, I'm doing the same thing I would do when I'm performing. So I think that if there's one thing that people could take away is to take that time, figure out what you want and make sure that you are spending your precious life hours because you only get so many. Make sure that you're spending them the way that you really want to. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Morgan Tavares with me today. Morgan, how are things down in Puerto Rico? They are sunny. They are beautiful. And that's really about it. <laughs> how? And were you born there? Like, how does somebody end up in Puerto Rico? I hear all these crazy things about taxes and stuff, but how did you get there? What's the story? A little bit about, a little bit about taxes, not going to lie. But I ended up in Puerto Rico. So in 2019, it's a, it's a longer story than it needs to be. In 2019, my husband and I sold all our things, quit our jobs, left. We bought one-way plane tickets to Spain. We had $6,000 in the bank. We said, we're going to figure it out because it had always been my dream. Speaking of chasing dreams, it had always been my dream to see the world. And I just hadn't had the opportunity until that point. So um, we took a leap and we ended up traveling for 17 months through six countries. We did COVID in Thailand. We got pregnant in Istanbul. We uh, got our first ultrasound in in uh, Tanzania. And then uh, we came back to the States to have our baby. And then after that, we said, you know, how how are we going to live? How are we going to continue this adventure? We're obviously not going to take our child and suffer in a backpack and hit the road again. So we wanted to settle down somewhere that felt very much like still a vacation, still an adventure, but also somewhere that was comfortable, somewhere where you know, we didn't have to immigrate. We didn't have to convert our currency. And, and Puerto Rico was just the answer. My husband's Dominican as well. So we're right across the way from DR. He's got the Spanish language skills when we need them. It's been 
very much so the best of both worlds. And I, I'm on the West Coast. I'm in Maya West, West Coast, Best Coast. And I'm absolutely in love with Puerto Rico, the island of enchantment. And they mean it. It's amazing here. <laughs> wow. What an adventure. So where did you get the itch? Sell everything? Backpack through all those countries? How do you get the courage? That just seems wild. It felt that way. And that's how a lot of people reacted, you know, and I had also just gotten promoted at my job. I was promoted from teacher to director of curriculum for science. So I was really in a, in as good a place as I possibly could be. And then we just kind of saw it as our last opportunity is what it was. And we didn't want to miss it. You know, we were recently married. We were thinking about starting a family. And this is it's been it's been my dream to see the world since I was like nine years old. I was one of those kids. I found out about Japan. I was nine and I had heard something like, you know, about sushi and people eat raw fish over there. And so I made, as a nine-year-old, I made my parents find a sushi restaurant and they weren't big back then, older than I look. They were a huge bag in that day. And they had to find us a sushi restaurant so I can go and try this um this raw fish dish. And I was just so enamored. And from that age on, all I wanted to do was see other parts of the world, see how other people live, um, experience cultures, experience the food, experience the lifestyle, really like get in there. And when we traveled, we didn't live anywhere for less than usually two months that we stayed in one city or one country. So I really got the opportunity to, to scratch that itch. But it's an itch that's been with me since as long as I can remember. Man, okay, so it, it's been a bug since you were a child. You said you were a teacher. That means you must have went to a lot of school, huh? <laughs> I didn't, actually. I have a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering from Drexel University, DU represent. And I worked as a scientist then for like six, seven years. I got laid off twice. I graduated college in the Great Recession, and it was, it was a fiasco. I got laid off from my first job. And that was right after I first started trying to invest a little money, you know, and you get your first tax return from your first job and you say, I'm going to put this into some stocks, some mutual funds. I'm super excited to build my portfolio. And I get that money in there and that money like halves in the first like six months that I've been investing because the Great Recession of like 2007, 2008, right? And I'm just, I'm so depressed about it. I take the money back out, like forget it. And I take a trip to India to go see my friend get married. I was like, let me, uh, let me live a little bit of my dream with my cash instead of trying to do the right thing and watch my money dwindle. And then I got laid off from this great lab job. I get another lab job. And then three, four years later, I get laid off again. So that was during the time of extended unemployment. We used to call it fun employment. And um, that was like the the larger jobs recession that happened under Barack Obama. And um, you could continue to extend your unemployment benefits for quite a while. So at that point, I kind of stopped looking. I was like, you know what? I make enough. I live with friends. I'm still in my late 20s at that point. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a little vacation. I'm going to take it for me. So yeah, I was unemployed for probably a year and a half, just figuring it out. I was like, I don't want to go back into the lab and get laid off again. I can't, I can't handle it. I can't handle the insecurity. People talk about W-2 jobs like they're the most secure thing in the world. And right out of college, I'm supposed to have that security. I have a degree in biomedical engineering. This is supposed to be one of the fastest growing fields. This is how it was sold to me. And all I have is student debt and two layoffs to show for it. And I'm like, absolutely not. I'm getting a job where I can always get a job. 
So that's what led me into teaching. I did um, the new teacher project, TNTP, through, well, yeah, through TNTP, I got into teaching NOLA, which is the New Orleans branch of that. And I did a summer program, became a biology teacher, and started working in high schools. And I taught first, taught high school for seven years. I'm super lucky. It really worked out for me. A lot of people go through these alternative programs and it's just not right for them, you know? But for me, the schools, the kids, the atmosphere, the autonomy, everything like that was really just aligned with myself, how I live, what I like to do. So yeah, teaching was actually just like a a huge step in the right direction for me. And then from there, you move forward a few years and I'm traveling north. (laughs) So I think it's beautiful It sucks, but it's beautiful that you didn't get lulled to sleep with the good corporate job, all the security, paycheck after paycheck after paycheck. You got, somebody can walk (laughs) in and say, I don't have to do any, we don't need your services anymore. And here's your box. (laughs) And that is just, I think, the most terrifying thing for most people. And you decided to just lean all the way in on it and explore and do the things that you probably desired to do anyway, but you weren't doing because you had to go to that place where you were supposed to get a paycheck. Is that fair? Absolutely. You're right on the money. So was there a day, like, is there a moment, I call this a red pill moment, where you decided like life has changed for me forever and I can't ever go back? Absolutely. 100%. And it's so interesting to me that, I mean, you're amazing at this and this, a lot of people must follow this same story arc, right? You live your little life in isolation and people talk to you and they're like, wow, that's so amazing. You did that. And then you realize there's so many people who've done the same thing. So, but for me, the moment, for me, the moment was, it was a personal moment. It was, um, I got diagnosed with breast cancer at 30. So what happened was I did the Teach NOLA project. I got my, I got my very first job as a teacher And that same year, that same year, my first year in the classroom, I got breast cancer diagnosis the day after my 30th birthday in February. And that was my moment. That was the moment where I really had to sit down and evaluate life. Why am I here? What am I doing? What is the purpose of me doing these things? Is it bringing me joy? When, you know, God forbid, I'm on my deathbed, what am I going to look back on and value? What am I going to look back on and regret? What am I going to look back on and wish I had tried? And I decided right then and there that I needed to live my life with those things in the focus. And I don't think anybody faces their final moments or, or deals with their mortality and comes out of it going, oh, you know, I wish I had earned a couple other, a couple extra dollars. I wish I had taken that weekend work, you know? (laughs) I wish I had stayed up later writing lessons. You know, things like that are not the things that are going to matter to you at the ends, right? And so the things that are going to matter is like, did did I connect with the people I love? Did I spend time with my family? Did I raise my daughter the way that I want to see her raised? Did I, you know, work on things that I found powerful and meaningful? And teaching for me was very much so powerful and meaningful. And I could have done that my entire life and been quite happy. But it was the things around teaching that start to wear you down. It's the long commutes, it's the extra hours, it's the lack of support, right? So while I still love education, I still work in education. I just, I just, I had to, I had to start thinking at that point, how am I going to start to make my dream a reality? How am I going to start to make seeing the world, having time to myself, 
being at home with the people I love, how am I going to make that a reality? And I started thinking that the day after my 30th birthday, I started thinking it right that moment. And then I, um, and you know, all the surgery, double mastectomy. I had eight rounds of chemotherapy. I had six and a half weeks of intense radiation. And I came out of the other end cancer free, no, no evidence of disease. I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed to be in the position that I'm in right, that I am right now. And I don't take any of it for granted. I feel very much so that we're on this earth not to suffer and strive for someone else, but to find purpose and meaning in the things that we do and to find connection with the people that matter. And that's all I want to do with my time. I have no desire to do anything else. You better talk that talk. You better talk that talk. <laughs> you get a round of applause because I think so many people miss that this thing is finite and in the blink of an eye, everything can change. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff that you thought was just so certain and so secure can be blown out like a flame on a candle. And I think it encourages us to start living. I think a lot of times people try to survive. They want to exist and I don't think that's what we're here for. I think we're here to take things to that next level. So Morgan, that, that was just a beautiful, beautiful layout of the red pill moment. It's really interesting because sometimes I ask people about the red pill moment and they they look at me with a blank stare like the day. I take it every day. But you got that moment <laughs> which like, boom, here it is. And we're going to go do something different. And so you kind of told us what life was like before you gave us a little teaser on you know, being out, staying places for at least two months. But who showed up, right? You're on the backside of the treatment. I don't think you were traveling during the cancer treatment. Who showed up to help you live this life of adventure? Because I, I tell you, there's a bunch of people listening right now and they're like, I, I'm ready to go. How, how did she do it? <laughs> who showed up to help you on that journey? Did you figure it all out on your own? No, my husband showed up. Frankly, that was that was the that was the other shoe dropping, right? I had the desire. I had the desire since I was a child. But what happened was I found somebody as crazy as me to live these adventures with. Our second or our second or third date, we went on an overnight canoe trip with this dog. Neither one of us knows how to canoe. <laughs> we were just out here in this river. We made it happen as far as we were supposed to make it. They had to come pick us up at the halfway point because we did a terrible job of canoeing for this two-day trip. But that was on our second or third date. That was just the sort of, as a sort of um, like say yes to life people that we both are. Our next date after that, we went camping at a beach together. And that's when he asked me to be his girlfriend. And, you know, we're, we're a few dates in at this point and we've already been on two trips together. So things just really clicked together when I met him. And we almost immediately started doing everything together. He he uh, got offered a job as a he's a he's a social worker background. He got offered a job as a teacher at this school, Renew 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 Accelerated High School in New Orleans. Big shout to the RAHS Blue Dogs, still my heart. He got offered this job, and I advised him to take it. And then the next year, I got offered a job at the same school. So we were working at the same school. He was doing ELL support in my classroom. We were teaching the same classes. And we just, we were people who very much so from the jump wanted the same things, wanted the same things out of life, wanted to see each other achieve our dreams. And we're quite comfortable spending like a lot of our time together. Because if you're going to travel the world with somebody, you're going to be like, going to be like this the whole, whole, whole time. There's nowhere to escape to. And there's not a lot of other people to talk to. So the person who's with you 
has to be like a partner that you can really enjoy that that sort of closeness with. And we established that very early on. So yeah, without without my husband or Henny's, I'm not sure that I would have done the things that I did in the time that I did them as much as I wanted to. Simply having another person, another set of hands, another mind. Somebody, when you're like, am I crazy? Am I, should I really do this? Who you can talk to and they can be like, yeah, 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 do it, do it. Or they can be like, no, 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 no. I'm pretty sure that's the limit, Morgan. So yeah, I really, I'm grateful that I have that sort of support, that sort of relationship. Um, I definitely know couples who one person might be more adventurous than the other person. Like one person really wants to get out there and see the world or move to another country. And the other person's like, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. So I do very much so count myself lucky that the person that ended up being right for me also um, allowed me to do, you know, all of these things that I really, really wanted to do. That's so interesting because I'm sure people are listening and you're like, wait, they're doing this on two teachers' salaries? <laughs> no, 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 no. That's impossible. How How is that possible? How, how is mm-hmm. that possible? A couple of things. One, and this is something that I very much so believe, and I also I've seen another guest on your show speak on this, is like, there's a, there's a number that's enough, right? Like, if you sit down and you look at what you need to save for your future and what you need to save for your long-term future and what you need to live on and what you need to pay your bills, there's a number. And that number is enough. And anything you're making over that is money that could be put towards your dreams. So what we did, we used to call it a reckoning. And we would sit down every time we got paid and we would take all the little monies that we needed to put towards all the things to make sure we had enough. And then we would, we did the cash envelope system. It's a pretty old school system, but we had an envelope for grocery money, an envelope for fun money, you know, and we put the cash in there and anything that wasn't going towards our life went into, into our savings account, into our like kind of dream fund. And that's what we used to start our travels when we did start them. And that sort of mindset, I think, is what, is what allows us to continue doing this. I follow Marty Woodard on uh, Instagram. He's like a big, big dude in this marketing field. And one of the things he said that really resonated with me, he's like, a lot of folks can't chase their dreams because they're too proud to drive a cash car. We've always driven cash cars. We don't have a cash note. We don't, we don't, we avoid things that are going to be regular recurring expenses. Anything that we can buy outright, we buy outright. Anything that's a subscription, we really think about it. Do we need this? Do we need this for our business? We keep our overhead low, you know? We keep our expenses as low as we possibly can. And it's a question of value for me, right? I value freedom. I value staying at home with my one-year-old daughter and my husband and spending all of my time with them. And for me, there's a trade-off. And some of that trade-off is, you know, I'm not getting a new car off the lot. And, you know, we're not paying for cable here in Puerto Rico. Those little things that you kind of find a way to move some things around so that your quality of life is more, you know, trips to Vieques, trips to Culebra, you know, like, you know, out here trying to to live that dream and have those experiences as opposed to sort of like the trappings of modern life that end up just like sucking your cash flow away. So my buddy Duran calls this selective extravagance. And so (laughs) you're saying the experiences are worth the investment. The other stuff, the stuff isn't really worth it. Is that fair? Absolutely. You're right on the money there. Yeah. So... (laughs) 
Were you always frugal? Because, I mean, this feels almost like a fire episode, right? <laughs> Financially independent, retire early. Like, is <laughs> is this a thing? Or were you like, I, I don't need a bunch of things? Or did you... Did you have to have the Louis bag or the Gucci shoes at some point? <laughs> like, talk to me. I, going into biomedical engineering, that isn't usually something for somebody who doesn't spend money. They usually, they want to enjoy life a little bit. No? Yeah. So, yes, it definitely was a transition. And you know what, what some, of, some of what I discovered? So I'll take you back. I'll take you a little bit back. When I was a kid, when I was in college, I was one of those girls that I had to have designer jeans. Designer jeans were my thing. I had a closet full of jeans and these jeans cost 170, 200, sometimes $300 a piece. I was just obsessed with having labels on my body that ones that, you know, not everybody knows, right? And I'm telling you, the designer jeans, they fit different. I still, I still believe that very strongly, but that was like my thing. I had to have these jeans and then you had to have the nice shoes to match my blazer game. This is, you know, early 2000s, the Audis. I had to have the jeans and the stilettos and a blazer. That was the situation, right? <laughs> and I was really into like sort of fashion, that sort of thing. You're right. I was going out quite a lot. And what I realized, though, was that these were placeholders, that these were things I was doing to fill the emotional gap of not being free, right? And that I could trade some of these things for for the emotional stability of of the freedom. And I'm going to be a little bit personal, a little bit vulnerable with you again, that I'm someone who suffered from anxiety and depression. My whole life, I can remember just some of my earliest memories are, are depressed thoughts, are scary, scary self-harm thoughts. And when I, when I left, Jerome, when I left, when I said, you know what, we're going to figure this out, we're going to live the life that we want to live. I, it was over. It was, I haven't, I haven't had the level of pathology that oppression, that, that depression and anxiety that needs to be medicated, that needs to seek counseling help. I haven't had that since 2019 because I've treated the pressure and the forcing myself to do things that I don't want to do consistently on a daily basis. I've traded that for an entire lifestyle where I wake up and, you know, I got to build some hours, you know, I still have to deal with an angry child a lot of the time, but nothing that I'm doing is being foisted upon me. I'm not sitting in traffic for an hour every morning, making my way to a job I don't want to do to sit there and avoid the people I don't want to talk to, to get back out, go home, do some more stuff I don't really feel like doing to maintain the apartment I really need to go to sleep, wake up and do it again. That'll depress you. That'll make you anxious, right? I don't do that anymore. I, I switched. I traded one for the other and I'd rather be happy. <laughs> traded one for the other. You better talk that talk. So <laughs> I think so many people are in these miserable situations because they are scared that people are going to say they went backwards or they lost mm -hmm. or whatever else. And so you've got this really interesting approach to like freelancing and stuff. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because, I mean, I think there are some people out here who are trying to figure out the gig economy. Yes, absolutely. And that's 100 percent valid. I talk to people all the time that are just like, how did you do it? And and I end up telling them a very short story. So it's been really fun sort of recounting the details here with you. But what happened, what happened to me was that I, I left my job as a teacher. And I frankly was much more hopeful that my husband would find 
good and profitable freelance work before I did because of his set of skills, his social work background, his bilingualism. I felt like he was more adaptable. I said, you know, I'm, I'm a high school biology teacher with a background in biomedical engineering. What can I do online, right? What can I do remotely and freelance to make, to make some money? They're not going to let me freelance teach biology classes. What am I going to do? <clears throat> but I just started putting myself out there Um, I got on some good job boards. EdSurge has a great job board. If you're a teacher out there looking to make that transition, I've found like a lot of opportunities there. Just setting an alert on Indeed for remote work was another thing I did right away. So I would get emails every week with a list of remote jobs to apply to. And I ended up finding a position, my first job, my first remote job, freelance job, paying, oh, and let me back up a little bit. Before that, I was working doing like little writing gigs. I would find gigs on on places like Upwork and Scripted. And I would just do a little bit of writing here and there to make a few dollars to keep us going on our vacation around the world, our, our trip around the world, before I actually found something reliable. I got a contract with a company called Nagwa and I was making, and it was really a dream come true. I was making biology lesson videos. So I was drawing on a whiteboard and narrating these lessons And the lessons were, it was an English company based in Egypt or Egyptian company based in England. And the lessons I was making were being shown to Egyptian students. The lesson I made for Nagwa, the lessons I made for them have been viewed millions and millions of times by students in Egypt, which is just such a fantastic thing to transition from that impact one-on-one face-to-face in a classroom to now my work is being viewed millions of times by millions of students. My reach expanded. My ability to educate expanded. My ability to share my passion for biology expanded just from that sort of little leap of faith. And it was, there's a little funny story there. When I did finally get this job offer, we were, we had run out of money. We had to make the decision. Are we going to take this last little bit of money and turn around and go home? Are we going to take this last little bit of money and find one more cool thing to do? And at that point, we were in Bangkok, Thailand. And long story short, we ended up on an island in Cambodia called Koh Rong. And Koh Rong is a huge vacation island. Well, it's a tiny vacation island, but a lot of people go there. It's a tourist destination. And we'd been connected with a woman who ran a place called Sky Bar, where you could it was a beautiful top of a hill, this crazy view. Imagine a Cambodian tropical island, blue ocean, white sand, just jungle all around you. And I'm living in a bungalow and I'm working at a sky bar. And this is when I get this job. And they're like, okay, we have to send you an iPad and a microphone and an Apple Pencil. Do you have an address? <laughs> and I'm like, Korong Island, Cambodia, care of sky bar. It was a hilarious moment and I'm so lucky that everything worked out. We actually did get the all of the technology delivered safely and on time. It had to come by plane, train, automobile and a couple of boats, but they got it to me and I was able to start this job that was allowed that allowed us to continue our journey. So when I say freelance, you know, a lot of times I like to feel like I'm working for myself. But I do rely on long-term contracts with reliable clients to make sure that I have that steady income. And the difference is that I have sort of the the freedom to set my own schedule. I have the freedom to say yes or no to different projects, to work when I want to work, to take off when I want to take off, to make a schedule that works for my baby. You know, I tend to work five hours a day, five days a week now. And it's just, it's kind of a, a dream come true. 
But yeah, it was really it was really interesting inroad getting into that. And from there, I've I've worked on a lot of different projects. Now I work primarily as a consultant with a business called Integral Ed, and I do e-learning development and consulting and writing for them. But yeah, that first job was crazy because I was really like, what do teachers do when they don't want to teach? <laughs> and to have my eyes open, there's this whole world of possibilities. Whatever you're doing for someone else, this is something I say a lot. Whatever you are doing for someone else, you can do for yourself. Whatever it is that somebody is paying you to do, you can cut out the middleman and find a way to do it yourself. Or there's somebody out there, and I think of these freelance sort of companies as like connectors. There's somebody out there who can take the time to connect you with the clients and opportunities that are going to be right for you. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, a.k.a. the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Wow. I think you just expanded people's horizons because so many people think they got to go to this place to get the thing and then get the paycheck. And it's like, no, (laughs) people are willing to meet you where you are if you're talented. And you must have done something really special for them to send you a computer to the sky bar. I mean, it seems like at some point they'd be like, are you serious? Like, we're going to do this? And maybe maybe we could find somebody who's a little bit closer. I can't imagine what the shipping cost was. (laughs) Truly not. (laughs) So, all right. This is one of the questions I like to ask because I think it really shows our growth. So Mm -hmm. what's the biggest difference in your approach to life today versus before you you made your red pill exit? Mm. The biggest difference in my approach to life is that I have a lot more confidence. I have a lot more faith in my own abilities to make my own way in the world, to see others and help others make their own way in the world. I've talked a lot about my my own freelance experience, and that's a fantastic way to make sure that you have that stability, to have that income. But on top of that, I do business development coaching, friends and family mostly, people that I know who are trying to do something similar to what I did, who are just thinking, you know, how can I work for myself? How can I get my time back? How can I create a flexible schedule? How can I spend more time with my family? How can I pursue this dream now before it gets to be too late? And I love working with those people to make sure that they have the support and the confidence that they feel like they need. The other thing that's very different is that I take more risks, right? I'm much more willing to try new things since I have this experience under my belt of trying so many new things over the past, you know, three, four years. So one of the things that I've done that I'm very, very proud of is that I'm co-founder of a business called The Culture Respect. And The Culture Respect is a DEI course, but it's not a DEI course, if that makes sense. It's uh, We provide individual and group trainings for people and businesses who want long-term solutions to having divisive conversations in a nuanced and unified way. So if you're like, 
my business really has a has struggles with these issues around race or these issues around gender identity, or I would like to understand more issues around ableism or issues around um, heterosexism. We offer and run a 10-week course that um, through experiential peer-led learning has us in explore our identities on all these isms. So it's first-person narratives. You're learning from different people. And and starting this business with my partner, Phil Posick, was the sort of risk that I couldn't have taken if I was a full-time teacher. I would not have had the time. I would not have had the mental space, the mental energy to step out on a limb and say, this is a great opportunity. This is something that I believe the world needs. This is something that I feel like I'm uniquely positioned to do. I have this curriculum design background. I have this you know, remote work background. I have managing remote teams under my belt. And now I'm sitting in, in in a position in this meeting with someone who used to teach me this course, you know, back in my college days and we're going, you know, can this be a thing? Can this be a business? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it can. And I can help. I can do this. I have the space, the mental capacity, the time and the skills to do it. And I would have had to say no to this wonderful, life-changing opportunity if I were still living the life that I was living before. So... So many things are different, but I think that the biggest ones are confidence, just like a strong belief in my capabilities, a strong understanding of what I bring to the table and a huge willingness to take risks and to help other people find the confidence to take those same kind of risks. Yeah. So when you jump into the deep end of the pool, it doesn't seem so deep once you realize you can swim, right? Absolutely. <laughs> now I want to just give people swimming lessons, you know? <laughs> It's not going to hurt you. Just get in. Just get your face wet. <laughs> Blow some bubbles and then we'll get you to the rest of it. So, man, well, let's talk about that business a little bit because we've talked about freelance and tell us more about it and how people can get involved. And if you want to talk more about how coaching works with you for people who are looking to make that exit, I'd love to hear more about both of those. Thank you. I do want to start with coaching because, frankly, as much as I love it, it's not something I do. It's not something I do for the money. It's something I do for the love. So if you're interested in coaching, there's a lot of there's a lot of big names out here. Jerome, I think that you do some wonderful business coaching as well. So I don't I don't put myself on any kind of pedestal. I just really like to talk. I especially like to talk to women of color who are thinking about turning, you know, what they do already as their day job into something that they do for themselves. One of my clients a good friend, Sandra Perkins, who runs Able Therapy Services. She's She's been doing, you know, autism behavioral therapy in schools for years and years. And she's one of the best at it, right? Just like glowing accolades all around. Families that can't stop recommending her. And she's just like, how can I do this? How can I make this a business? And so we work together to create Able Therapy Services, which is how she's going to take what she's been doing for someone else and just do it for herself. So it's a service I like to offer, but I'll be I'll be pretty honest. I don't do a ton of it. If you reach out to me, I'm more likely to give you a couple free conversations than to get very roped into um, a huge package. But I love sending people on the right direction with that. And I, I definitely do it for the love and not for the cash. But um, the culture respect, the culture respect is uh, it's my baby. It's like it's like nothing else. And it's really it's been the most fulfilling type of challenge to get into this because I talked a lot about the skills that I do have, you know, and I'm not, it's, it's hard to highlight the gaps that you got, but when you jump into developing a business with a group of people 
um, not just going into entrepreneurship for yourself. It's a it's a it's a different can of worms, right? It's a much different prospect. And we started off with a team. We started off with a team of like twenty people. So there was never a point where it was just a couple of folks in the trenches, sweat equity. The very nature of what we do requires that we have a large team of people. And the the challenge is understanding how to find your market, how to find your customer base, how to communicate with your customer base. These are still challenges that we're growing into. But what we do and what we do very, very well is we run conversations. We run conversations for people to have One of our facilitators said a safe space for dangerous topics, right? We create these very highly facilitated spaces. Just last night, we had a conversation on the decision for the Supreme Court of the U.S. to overturn Roe v. Wade. And we we just invited a group of people. Our community had been saying we need a safe space to discuss this. And we created a structure that allowed people to vent their feelings, that allowed people to connect and exchange ideas, but that really centers the need to listen, the need to find a way to come together, the need to accept that not everybody is going to feel the same way on these very divisive topics and that that comes from their unique lived experience and that that's valid. So it was a very interesting thing, but I think that it's something that that we do what we do well and we do the best is create safe spaces for people to talk about almost anything. That's just one of our like kind of free evening type events. Our course, our 10-week course, walks people through understanding the oppression dynamics that exist in American society. And then we have these structured, facilitated. We have one facilitator to every three participants. When I say facilitated, I mean facilitated. You are in a safe space. When we have conversations about racism and we call them affinity groups, a lot of people call them affinity groups, right? In a group based around an identity, the person leading that group has that identity. So that's what makes that's what makes what we do so unique is that it's it's more labor intensive. It's not just one person sitting in front of a room going, I'm going to tell you a little something about race. I'm going to tell you a little bit of something about disability. You're sitting in small group discussions, having conversations with people who identify as you. And then you're getting the opportunity to share your experience in the most impactful way to people who are sitting there really ready to listen. So after we do that oppression dynamics introduction, we have each week, we have a different ism exploration. Each week is a two and a half hour session. It's like deep group therapy, right? So we're going to go into classism. Then we're going to do ableism, then sexism, then religious oppression. Then we're going to step into um, heterosexism, then racism, and then we're doing ageism, right? So we have a sequence. It's a very deliberate planned out sequence of explorations. And at the end of it, at the end of it, you come out of it not being able to not care about issues, right? Like you might've gone into it going, man, you know, I deal with racism and sexism every day as a Black woman, but ableism is not a problem for me. I'm an able-bodied person. You come out of it, you realize that those same dynamics that fuel the oppression of yourself fuel the oppression of others, right? And that your liberation is very much so tied up in theirs. And so inspired to take those steps, those little meaningful steps every day that drive the sort of systemic change that we're looking for. If you'll let me give you one more example, I know I've been talking about culture respect for a while. 
because I love culture respects and I could talk about it all day. And that's why I was so excited to have the space in my life to take advantage of this opportunity and co-found this organization together with Phil Posick. But one more small example. So I've talked about my work as a freelancer. I work with Integral Ed. And through Integral Ed, I was asked to review a document. Anyone out there, teachers that are listening, you've heard of the framework for teaching. The framework for teaching is a document put out by the Danielson Group that is used as like kind of the Bible for training and evaluating teachers. And the people writing the framework for teaching wanted to create guides that had an equity focus. And I had the opportunity to review the rough draft of one of these guides. And I looked at it and I said, they're promising people an equity focus, but they are not delivering. This document, if I was a new teacher and I read it, I would say, cool, cool, cool through the first part. And then the whole rest of the document with the how-to on it didn't tell me how to do the things that they're encouraging that I do. And as someone who used this guide as a teacher, I know it from both ends. I know from the inside and outside now. In a situation like this, if you had put it in front of me three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, I would have made a note, a personal note. I might have raised a concern with my direct, you know, the person who's managing this project. And I would have moved on, right? It's not my problem. It's not my ministry. But because of the experience I've had with the culture respect, as well as paired with the the professional that I've become through taking those leaps of faith and getting to know my own abilities, I went out on a limb and I, I put a lot of comments in that document. I said, these are all the things that I see opportunities for, right? These are the places where you could really make an impact with a whole new generation of teachers who are going into their classrooms and want to have this equity focus. And then Danielson Group turns around to me and they said, cool, well, write it. So now I get the opportunity to draft the equity portions of these guides that are going to go into the hands of millions and millions of people. And this came from, you know, the work that I've done with the culture respect, understanding and having the confidence that when there's an opportunity to step out on a limb, to do some work, to use my expertise to make the world a more equitable and inclusive place that I have not only the skills to do it, because a lot of us have the skills. A lot of us want to say something in those situations. But do you have the confidence and the language to say to someone, someone as big as the Danielson Group, I see opportunities for improvement here. And here's what I think you should do. And that confidence and those words, that language, that ability to communicate clearly with someone that I saw more opportunities for them to bring a stronger focus to their equity imperative is all because of the work that I've done with the culture of respect. So I like to kind of tell that story. It's hard to, sometimes it's hard for us to illustrate what all this time kind of kumbaya and circle about our identities. What does it get you? That's what it gets you. <laughs> wow. That was just more than I expected to get. So thank you so much <laughs> for sharing, Morgan. No, it's amazing. <laughs> because I think what it shows people is you can have more impact, right? I think a lot of us feel limited. We feel pushed into a box. We feel compartmentalized because if we're working in a big organization, our function is just to do this thing. We're on the assembly line hammering the widgets. And you're saying, no, you can be expansive. And that expansiveness can lead to tremendous impact and help improve the lives of many other people, which is level six of our framework significance. And it was funny, you said, you know, not my ministry. And I, I just believe when people are on purpose and in purpose, then it is mission work. And it is what you need in order to make those dreams a reality and make that positive impact on lives of other people. And so I have two more questions with the time that we have left. The first one, what gift are you giving the world? Mm. Now, that is the question that when I looked at it, I was like, wow, 
That's a, it's a great, it's a great question. I like to think a lot about the gifts the world is giving me, (laughs) but what gift am I giving the world? And I think that, I think that my most clear answer to that question is, is belief. Is a gift of belief. I believe in opportunities. I believe in taking risks. And I believe in creating the spaces for other people to do that and spreading the belief in opportunities, spreading the belief in taking risks and spreading the belief of, you know, building the ladder and then pulling pulling one more person up behind you, right? We're not doing this on our own. So I really feel like the gift that I can bring the world is like the word faith comes to mind, but for me, it's different than that. For me, it's believing in myself, it's believing in other people. And it's believing that when you, like you said, when you're in mission, that the decisions you make are going to be the right decisions and that you'll have another opportunity to make another good decision and keep keep moving forwards towards, you know, towards your ultimate purpose. Move towards purpose, ladies and gentlemen. Move towards purpose. Final question. I know you're going to knock it out the park. What's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this? episode? Mm, I think that the one thing that I want people here me to take away from this is that you can do it, right? A lot of people make excuses. They know that they want something different and they might even be at the very beginning. They might be that person going, this can't just be it. This can't just be it. I heard you say that. This can't just be it. And they haven't even asked themselves yet, but what is it that I want? I just want people to know, especially people in dark places, people dealing with potentially terminal illnesses, people living with mental dysfunctions like anxiety and depression. I want people to know that that there's 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 opportunity, there's light at the end of these tunnels. That if you sit with yourself and you figure it out, what matters to me? What do I value? And maybe, you know, maybe new cars off the lot are what matter to you. And that's what you value and you decide it and you choose it for yourself. And then you're no longer pushed along at the whims of the people signing your paychecks. Fine, you've chosen that. But if you sit down and you have that reckoning and you look deep inside of your heart and who you are and you realize that the thing you wake up every day and do is never going to make you happy and is never going to make you fulfilled, then give yourself the opportunity to choose something else. That's what I want people to do. I want them to take the opportunity to just to cultivate and curate a life that's going to give them joy. Because as you said, it's finite. You get one chance, you get one go around. There's no do-overs. People like to say in uh, life, there's no dress rehearsals. I think the whole thing is a dress rehearsal, right? The dress rehearsal is when you get to put on the costume and do the dance and pretend there's an audience in front of you. Every single day is a dress rehearsal for me because, you know, I'm doing the same thing I would do when I'm performing. So I think that if there's one thing that people could take away is to take that time, figure out what you want and make sure that you are spending your precious life hours because you only get so many. Make sure that you're spending them the way that you really want to. (laughs) She's giving you guys all the gas today. You made it to the end of the episode. Morgan, thank you so much for being the true example of what it means to be a dream catcher, leaving all of the the status quo behind exploring the world, fighting and beating cancer. Cancer sucks. Just beat it up, get rid of it. And then being an example and an inspiration to women of color, your little one, your husband, and hopefully everybody that hears this episode. I'm so grateful to continue to follow you on this journey. And I just appreciate you being so generous with your time today. 
Thank you so much for having me, Jerome. This was a fantastic experience. <laughs> and I was so inspired by seeing what you do and really putting a name to this thing that I thought I was kind of crazy getting out there and doing. And you're like, no, 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 no. There's a way to do it. We can help other people do it. I'm really inspired by those steps that you're taking. So thanks for having me. Thank you. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll chat soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.